Hello and welcome to the Marland Institute podcast from Queen Mary, University of London. I'm Dr Lindsay Jenkins, Deputy Director of the Marland Institute. And this week I'm delighted to welcome Professor Selena Todd to discuss her new book, Snakes and Ladders, The Great British Social Mobility Myth. Professor Todd is a Professor of Modern History at Oxford University and the co-director of the Oxford Martin Programme on Women's Equality and Inequality. She writes about class, inequality, working class history, feminism and working lives. Her book, The People, The Rise and Fall of the Working Class, 1910 to 2010, was a Sunday Times bestseller and was described by The Observer as a book we badly need. Her new book, Snakes and Ladders, has been described as one of the best books of 2021 by The Times and The Financial Times. So thank you so much for joining us this morning, Selena. Thank you for having me. So in The People, you were giving us a new history of the working class in the 20th century. And for Snakes and Ladders, you've kind of taken an even more ambitious approach, um, not only kind of thinking about class, but also about gender, generation, place, and the way all these kind of factors um, interact with one another. I wonder if you could just maybe start by talking us through your idea for the book, your your objectives and what you were what you were hoping to achieve. Yeah, sure. Um, It came out of the people in some ways, because one of the things that happened when I undertook research for the people was uh, I interviewed a number of men and women who I'd been at school with. Um, I was born in the 1970s, and I went to school in, in Newcastle in the 1980s. And one of the things that struck me and them was that superficially, they looked like they were doing so much better than their parents. So a lot of them had had dads who worked in the shipyards or in factories, um, mums who'd been cleaners or shop workers. And they themselves, my generation, they hadn't been to university necessarily. In fact, most of them hadn't. But they were managers, they were consultants, they were wearing smart suits to work. Some of them had cars. This is around 2008, 2009. So the crash was just happening. Um, and the the implications of that weren't yet completely felt. But they were very concerned about their futures and particularly about their kids' futures because they didn't have the security that they thought those jobs might have offered, um, either in terms of security of tenure or in terms of pensions. Um, And they certainly didn't have trade union rights. So there was this interesting thing where occupationally, in terms of what sociologists would say, they had experienced upward mobility. They were managers and consultants, as I say. But actually, they didn't feel that they had experienced that. And so it was partly that that just got me really intrigued in the idea of social mobility. And at that point, when the people came out 2014, there was still quite a lot of chat among policymakers about about social mobility as being the main goal for politicians who wanted to create a more just society. Um, And I was very sceptical of that because I didn't really see that as anything more than harking back to the post-war era and the idea of chances for a few in the post-war period, those who managed to pass the 11 plus and get to grammar school. And I thought, surely we can do better than that. So I guess the other motivation was wanting to look back at the last century and think, well, can we do better or am I being unfair? And so the book sort of came about as a way of thinking through how did social mobility work for those people who were mobile? And as you say, I'm interested in sex as well as class there, and women play a big part in that story. But also, what does it mean to be in a society where social mobility is touted as a political good, as it was for most of the 20th century? What does it mean if you're not mobile or if you go down the ladder? How does that, how does that experience affect you? And also, were there alternatives? Were there people who were arguing for a different way of organising society? And the answer is yes, there were. 
So some of the concepts that you're talking about in the book, Selena, the the kind of foundational one, obviously being social mobility, but what you're arguing is that there is a kind of, there's a big difference between what it might mean to um, to sociologists and to policymakers and um, how it's understood and experienced by quote unquote ordinary people. Where does this kind of concept come from uh, and why did it become so um, so politically seductive and attractive? The concept of social mobility comes out of the work of a sociologist called John Goldthorpe, who's still working in Oxford today. He came up with it in the early 1970s. And his idea of social mobility was to measure the social distance travelled between a man um, in his mid-30s, where he had got to, compared to where his dad had been at a similar age. So it was always a concept which was built around the male occupational uh, trajectories. And it was also built around what Goldthorpe called a five-class schema, sometimes developed into a seven-class schema, which ranked occupations according to income and also power. Goldthorpe was very attentive to the idea that we need to look at how much power and autonomy people operate. But it, it went from unskilled manual workers at the bottom to professionals and company managers at the top. Over time, sociologists have done a good job at trying to expand that model to fit women but women have never really fitted um, into it. And so one of my starting points was, hang on, does a model ever really work if 51% of the population can't be fitted into it? And shouldn't we be perhaps challenging the model rather than just saying, oh, well, we'll just ignore them then? So that, that, was, that was something that made me very sceptical about it. In terms of why policymakers have liked it, I think partly because policymakers understandably like statistics, as they should. They're very interested in, in what happens to majority and significant minorities. And the thing about the Goldthorpe model is that it really offers, it offers big numbers um, and it allows you to, to deal in snapshots. So it, it makes for catchy sound bites, but it also makes for good policy briefing documents if you're, if, you're, if you're a very overstretched politician. And I think also politically, social mobility became much more embedded in political discourse after 1997 with New Labour, and even more so in Gordon Brown's premiership, and then since 2010. In fact, I undertook a bit of an analysis of party political manifestos. And what's interesting is that between the 2000s and the early 2010s, it's really embedded there. And when it started to change was when Jeremy Corbyn took over as Labour leader. Um, it began to fall off a bit anyway, just before that under Miliband. But then Labour really started to opt out of it um, in the later 2010s and started to talk more about equality and about fairness. But until then, for, for the best part of 20 years, there'd been this idea that you know meritocracy capitalising on an older idea which had come out of, of the 1945 Labour government, that meritocracy was really what politicians were aiming for. So you have the talented and hardworking at the top and the rest at the bottom. And that really fitted both New Labour's and the Tories' political agendas, because what it suggested was, yes, you know, we're not, we're not here for the scroungers, as the Tories, particularly under George Osborne, would have, would have termed it. We're here for the hardworking um, and those who are willing to make an effort will be rewarded. And as you're kind of suggesting there, social mobility is a term which has a long history in ideas about meritocracy. And yet, in some ways, meritocracy itself, it has always been a myth, this idea that it's all you have to do is kind of work as hard as you can and natural talent will enable you to rise. And so, you know, the individual effort is, is kind of at the core of this. 
Yeah, it's the interesting thing about meritocracy, I think, and social mobility since 1997 is it, it normalizes class, it normalizes a social hierarchy and, and naturalizes it to some extent, suggesting that we should question who is at the top of that social hierarchy. But what it doesn't do is draw our attention to the social hierarchy itself and suggest that there might be an alternative to it. And yet, if we probe that hierarchy, um, what we see is that the kinds of concepts, which, as you say, are embedded in the theory of meritocracy, the idea of talent being rewarded, for example, are absolutely shaped within class relations. So one of the things that really interested me in my research was the way in which certain occupational groups were able to use their wealth and their political connections to establish themselves as professions, um, the medical profession being an obvious example. And obviously, they were so powerful that even after the National Health Service was introduced, uh, many of them were, were, were still able to make money out of private health care. The private health care system was never abolished, partly because of that very powerful lobby. So, so that was really interesting for me. And also the concept of intelligence, which really only becomes something which is accepted as a way that society should be organised after the Second World War, but then is very widely accepted. Mm. But intelligence, what, what that meant was to some extent doing well in uh, pursuits which were held as good um, and productive by those who had political power at the time. And what's really interesting there is you see that debate played out in the civil service, for example, where at the beginning of the Second World War, the civil service is already using examinations by that point um, to determine entry. But by about halfway through the Second World War, they're saying, uh, hang on, because actually these examinations don't really do anything other than filter out a ton of people. And by 1943, 1944, the civil service was expanding and they needed new recruits. And they realized that their examination system was just completely obsolete. You know, all it, all it did really was, was replicate like with like. And, and that's the issue is that if you have forms of selection, then the people who are selecting tend pretty much always to select people who look and sound like themselves. As well as intelligence and definitions of what does you know, intelligence mean, Another thing that comes across in the book is is definitions of skill um, and what is skilled work and 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 how that kind of plays into ideas about hierarchy and mobility. So again, who is defining what skill is and what skill looks like? Yeah, it's really interesting, and I think that's where you really see uh, the the gendered component of some of these decisions coming through. Um, one way in which the trade unions were able to to exercise collective power was over determining what skilled labour was and who was recruited to it. And, and understandably so, you know, all of these decisions, whether it's trade unions seeking to preserve skilled jobs for a few, or whether in the later 20th century it's uh, uh, people getting out their sharp elbows who are highly educated and making sure that their kids get into selective or popular schools because they're worried about their children losing out. These decisions are all made in the context of hierarchy. I mean, that's one of the corrosive things about the social mobility narrative is, again, you know, we're, we're told or we were told by New Labour and by conservative administrations for, for in the late 20th and early 21st centuries, that it was completely natural for people to want the best for their children. Yes, it probably is, but that doesn't necessarily mean competing with other people's children for limited resources. 
But if you put people in a situation where there are limited resources and where there's a hierarchy, they are going to fight to try to reproduce their own privilege. And to some extent, that's what happened with the trade unions um, in the 19th century. The, the first unions were craft unions, and they had a real vested interest in limiting access to their trades so that their members could have negotiating power, including walking off the job, and then not seeing themselves just replaced with cheap new labour. What happens in the 20th century is that very often it's women who are the losers there because they are excluded from many of those skilled jobs um, and, and have no way in. And so you have a situation where in the interwar years, for example, as mass assembly lines expand in light manufacturing, it tends to be young and female workers who go into that kind of work and it's classified as unskilled or, or at best as semi-skilled. And in the long run, a heck of a lot of, of manual workers are losers there because semi-skilled work expands after the Second World War. And the workers in those industries and those jobs never have the negotiation rights that the skilled trade unions had managed to, to get before the Second World War. And because those skilled trade unions were still fighting for their little bit of privilege after the Second World War, the ability of semi-skilled workers to kind of to fight for negotiation rights on the same terms, it was always hampered because you always had the skilled trade unions saying, no, you know, get back in your box. <laughs> you, you don't deserve the same pay rate as our, as our members. But it was all arbitrary. I mean, in the end, a skill is only a skill if you're in demand. So come the 1980s and the restructuring of manufacturing, a very political decision by the Thatcher administration, those skilled workers lost out completely. And I think one of the things that kind of comes across in what you've just been saying, and also in the book more more widely, is that one of the consequences of a, an adherence to uh, meritocracy or to social mobility and hierarchy itself is that it has a tendency to promote competition rather than collaboration and that there is a sense that only so many of us can get ahead, can do well and that therefore what comes across really strongly in the book is both a sense of um, acute anxiety and almost kind of need to compete with one another and yet on the other hand you have these really striking instances of people who are resisting that narrative of competition and a kind of recognition that it's not just about individuals getting up the ladder, but about kind of widening the ladder itself. Yeah, it's really it's it's really striking that even in the post-war, the post-Second World War years, which are often rightly thought of as a golden age of social mobility, because those who were born between the mid-1930s and the early 1950s were proportionately more likely to experience upward social mobility than any generation before or since in modern times. Yet even then, when they came into adulthood, very few of them were upwardly mobile into the most lucrative and powerful professions like the law or like the upper echelons of medicine or politics, for example, because there was this, this idea that there's, there's still only room at the top for a very, very few. And that idea works um, for those who, who are at the top. But what that meant was that there were lots of people who were, who were denied the opportunity to go into those kinds of professions. Now, so where did they go? What, what did lead to, to upward mobility? Because the book certainly isn't suggesting that there was none. In the post-war war period, there was, there was, as I've just said, you know, quite a lot. What happened was that collaborative ventures 
led to new opportunities for lots of people. And and the post-war welfare state is a case in point. So the labour movement had been arguing for more comprehensive welfare and for some kind of economic planning since the early 20th century. Um, um, And some of the ways that they did that are charted in the book. One of the ways that they developed their ideas was was through adult education, through establishing the Workers' Education Association and the labour colleges like Ruskin College in Oxford in the early 20th century, which became these places where ideas were debated and honed and then re-debated and re-honed over decades. And then some of those people became incredibly influential in local government in the interwar years when labour begins to win some of the large urban local authorities from the mid-1920s onwards. I was able to track some of these individuals, and they're very instrumental in some of the larger, most progressive local authorities, like Herbert Morrison's London County Council in the 1930s, which do start to introduce these welfare measures. And it's precisely the women and men who've come through places like the Labour Colleges and the WEA who were were part of, of, of trying to do that. So, so they become the early architects of the, of, of, of the welfare state. And then the welfare state and the economic planning that went alongside the welfare state, the post-war labour government's commitment to full employment and also to uh, supporting the expansion of private manufacturing, leads to the expansion of new opportunities in things like middle management in industry, but also uh, the expansion of teaching, the expansion of nursing, the expansion of new technical jobs because this is also a period where research was funded. And so there's a great deal of technical and technological innovation going on in post-war Britain. So all of that collaboration leads to, leads to new opportunities. The expansion of polytechnics is another, and that's somewhere where lots of upwardly mobile people found a home both as students and then as staff in the 1960s and 1970s. So there's, there's really a sense that collaboration can not just help some people to climb the ladder, but also could create um, opportunities that would then benefit subsequent generations. And, you know, the post-war investment in things like health and, and education, I think, I think really speaks to that. And so much of what you were just talking about there and what comes across in, in the book as well is that, you know, this is a story not just about the development of the education system, but a kind of more fundamental discussion about what education is um, and its purpose and who it's for um, and how you access it. And I suppose one of the things that was um, very evident is a kind of emphasis within social mobility on education as providing a particular track which enables people to kind of make themselves make the most of themselves, but follow a very, very kind of particular path um, and one which doesn't allow for much deviation or you know making a mistake or having to leave the education system for a bit and what you were describing there is a much more kind of expansive vision of education which people can return to at various stages of their lives writing this book really opened my eyes to to that in some surprising ways i think what you said before was really right that one of the things that kept coming across to me generation after generation was how awful it was if you made a mistake or what you interpreted to be a mistake at an early age. And that was particularly the case before 1945 and then from the 1980s when that welfare safety net went. But it's there in the 50s too, actually, you know, before adult education and the polytechnics really get going with their emphasis on bringing in mature students and giving people a second chance to learn. So what really struck me was how 
important what people did at an incredibly young age was and and the decisions that they took then could be irrevocable you know i think we 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 can all think of recent generations where that's been the case but i'm thinking in particular of the earliest generation that i looked at who are coming of age in the 1900s and who were the first generation to have uh, elementary education and in many cases the first in their families to get work that relies on literacy And for those men and women, it was so important to work incredibly hard in their teens and get a a foothold into either teaching or clerking. Um, And if they didn't do it then, then then they were never really going to get the chance to do it. And, And that relied on huge amounts of family support on a huge amount of single-minded determination and also of course on good health which is as we know today you know one can never take for granted even in the 21st century so so all of these things had to come together so there's a huge amount of luck involved as well i compare that to a guy called albert mansbridge who's part of that generation who left school, he came from a working class family, left school in London in his mid-teens and just was a kind of normal teenager who sort of wanted more out of life than this boring office job that he had, but didn't want to spend evening after evening um, at night school and going to evening classes and so on and so forth. And luckily for him, his mum was involved in the co-op movement. And in the end, when he was 20, he was still only earning the same as he had at 14. She said to him, come on, I'll get you a job at the local co-op. And he then, through that, got involved in all kinds of things like the Cooperative Men's Guild and the adult education that offered. And he became a founder, the founder, really, of the Workers' Education Association. But he wasn't in his teens when he did that. You know, he had to have a bit of life experience to do that. He learned from his, not even his mistakes, his early experiences, He learned what was needed for him and for thousands of others like him. And he got his chance through the Labour movement, but many, many people didn't. You know, fast forward to the the post-war golden age of social mobility. One of the statistics that really stood out for me was that, you know, the post-war education system was meant to allocate people to the jobs that their potential or their ability, we probably say now, best fitted them to. So you had this idea that a minority of children would go to the academic grammar schools, the gateway to the professions and university. Um, Another minority would go to technical schools. And then the vast majority would go to secondary moderns and they'd leave and become the industrial workers of the future. That was incredibly damaging on an emotional level to a generation of of children. And, And one of the most heartbreaking stories I came across was a woman who had managed to get back to education in later life, but she'd failed in her terms the 11 plus exam. She'd gone to a secondary modern school, same as 80% of her peers, but they were taught that this was a failure. She failed the 11 plus when she went to university in her early 30s. She got a first class degree. She loved it. Her tutors told her, you know, you should go on, you know, do a, do a graduate degree, you know, become an academic. And she said, that was my dream. But I couldn't ever get over the fact that I'd failed. You know, I felt like, you know, but I'm not really talented enough. So that kind of thing, you know, really stuck with people for life in a way that could really harm them um, and harm their potential. So, so that was really corrosive. But it's also really corrosive for wider society. If you base your ideas of education on the labour market, what you're not doing is accepting that labour markets tend to change, sometimes very rapidly, but also that we might operate some control 
over how they change. At moments of great social and political turbulence, and we're living through one now, actually what you want to do is educate as many people as possible to have the skills and the understanding and the knowledge that's going to allow them to have the imagination and the critical abilities to envision a different way of organising society that's going to help us to respond to, you know, now the pandemic, the climate emergency, um, and so on. Um, And we know that people can do it because, you know, I began this by saying, oh, there was a statistic that really stuck with me and then I've wandered all over the place. But the statistic that stuck with me was that that for that generation who were born between the mid-30s and the early 1950s, you know, by the end of the 1960s, a far greater proportion of them were in professional and white-collar jobs, supposed to be the preserve of those who'd gone to grammar school, right, than had ever been to grammar school. So the education system let them down. And that's the problem, is that hierarchy always underestimates people's potential. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about the individual experiences of social mobility and how bigger objectives and the kind of systems that were being shaped around them played out in people's lives and how people resisted them. Yeah, I think one of the things that really struck me listening to and eliciting people's stories is that very often the image of the of the socially mobile person is a very individualistic one. It tends to be the upwardly mobile man who's pulled himself up by his bootstraps. And there are certainly men who, who have presented themselves uh, like that. But it just wasn't the story that kept coming up for me. One of the things that, that really struck me with my research was how much those who sought to climb the ladder relied on, but also sought to pay back their family and, and to some extent their friends. And I'm thinking here particularly about one of the uh, clerks that I traced in the oldest generation that I look at who were born in the 1880s. And this was a guy called John Gray, who figures quite largely in one of the chapters of the book, who was a shepherd's son from the Scottish borders. And um, very unusually, um, from that background, he became a bank clerk and, and eventually rose to become a bank accountant. One of the really striking things about about John Gray's family, we can't know very much about them. He didn't leave any any written records, but there were some records from his employer And then we've got the census, so we can have a look at what his family were doing. One of the the really striking things was that both his parents had been in service. His mum had been a domestic servant. His dad had been a farm servant. And that was very striking about quite a few of the men who became clerks in that generation. And some of those who, who did leave interviews or personal testimonies of other kinds said that their parents had taught them about how to exist in elite and middle class spaces, you know, and when to be deferential, when to show initiative and so on and so forth, yeah, how to act. And this definitely seemed to be something, judging by John Gray's glowing reports from his employer, that he took on. But it's also clear, looking at his family, that at various points, his his mum and dad were supporting their younger siblings. And my hunch is that John Gray took away the idea that he should support his family as well when he got a step or two up the ladder because his brother went into farming, became a shepherd like his dad, and his, and his sister became a domestic servant as her, as her mother had before her. 
Um, and John Gray remained in very close touch with them. In fact, he was buried in the same cemetery as his sister when he when he died in the 1940s. And and what struck me was that at various points in John Gray's working life, particularly when he had to move a long way away from his family home, or when a promotion was uncertain, he got sick, or he began to clearly be very flustered in the workplace. Luckily for me, banks kept close checks on their employees and wrote these meticulous reports about them. And I think that really speaks to the pressure, which then comes out much more in the personal testimonies and the social surveys that were undertaken of upwardly mobile people in later generations when sociologists began to get interested in them. And this kind of sense that, you know, families sacrificed a lot, you know, whether it was other siblings giving up their chance of education so that a particularly quote unquote talented son could get on, whether it was a mother going out to work in the post-war period in order to provide books and toys for her children in the hope that they might pass the 11 plus. Those kind of things really stayed with people. And this kind of idea of, of wanting to pay back and to some extent wanting to live the life that your parents had badly wanted for you could be a real source of pride, yes, definitely. I don't want to overplay the pain and loss here because you know, many people who went up the ladder were rightly really proud of their achievements and were able to make a substantial material difference to their families' lives. But that did also bring a strain. And in some cases, also a real frustration. And one of the things that struck me with many of the personal testimonies that I used for the book was the sense that in some ways they were playing out the dreams of, of their parents, the thwarted aspirations of mothers and fathers. You know, at times they'd ask, when do I get to lead my life and do, do what I want to do? And a, a group who were really poignant in that respect were a group who I knew nothing about before writing the book. And they were men who were born in the 1920s and 1930s often went into manual work following in their father's footsteps. But then during the Second World War and after the Second World War, because of the expansion of industry, they moved into management, usually into middle management. And one of the things that really struck me about these men was that even in the full employment era of the 1950s and 1960s, and many of them were in industries that were doing very, very well, they worked so hard. They worked such long hours. They were away from home for such a long period of time. And yet very often, they weren't necessarily that interested in the work that they were doing. And when you plumb down into their stories, what you find is a deep-rooted fear of poverty, which comes out of very early childhood experiences, and also a sense that they were, they were living the life that their father had never been able to aspire to. And yet they didn't always enjoy it. And so many of them thought, well, maybe if I just work harder, that's what I need to do, you know, to finally get that feeling of security and success and enjoyment, you know, that I want. But it was interesting with that group because many of them didn't want their children to follow in their footsteps. They wanted their children to become professionals, to become lawyers and doctors or university lecturers. And they said that they wanted that because they wanted their children to have a degree of autonomy and also a life outside work. And I think it's so unfashionable today to talk about leisure. But what I found with a lot of the people who wanted or achieved upward mobility was that they definitely wanted fulfilling work, but they also wanted more, more leisure time. And that was something that was really lost as an aspiration, even by the labour movement in the 1970s, when all the public spending cuts began and, and unemployment rose. 
but it's something which which stands out really as an aspiration over generations. You know, the desire to travel, to broaden one's horizons, to maybe go back and study, that's what they, they often wanted for their kids. And I think probably it's something that's kind of come out in the pandemic as well, especially now that we're all stuck at home and there's nothing to do but work, that people have realised that they want more than that. You know, people are not missing going to the office, they're missing their families. And perhaps one of the things that will kind of come out of this recent period is that there'll be a kind of reappraisal about what we what we want to keep and what we want to change. Selena, I don't want to end on a on a kind of ambivalent or, or or downbeat note. So I wonder if there was something that you, you know, that kind of drawing on this experience and and, and all your research that you would be able to to implement um, or a kind of major lesson, what do you think it would be? I would pay care workers the same as bankers. That's what I'd do. Because I think that, you know, we need to, you just mentioned there the idea of reshaping life around something that's not just work. We've realised in the pandemic that caring for other people, caring for ourselves as a society, isn't just an an additional extra. It's absolutely essential. And I don't know why I'm saying we've realised, because actually I think women always knew that, because women spend a large part of their lives looking after other people. And what we need to do is is to value that. And one of the things that, that I really took from the research on the book is that, you know, the people who are cleaners, the people who are care workers, yes, they care if their employer, whether it's a middle class woman in her own home or whether it's um, a big corporate multinational, whether they, they're treated, you know, well or not on, a, on an interpersonal level. But the big thing is, pay is security is being able to plan a future for yourself and your children so I think that that's what I'd do I'd pay care workers the same as the same as bankers and I'd also I'd abolish private education and I'd make universities comprehensive and we've just got to open up education to everybody who wants it and my goodness we're going to need to do that after after the pandemic not only because young people have lost out on a on a bit of schooling but because we need new ideas we need new blood we need new ways of doing things and best way of doing that is to have a fully comprehensive education system where we can debate and learn from each other thank you so much for that and thank you very much for joining me today and um, to all of you for listening i hope very much that you will have enjoyed the discussion and we'll go and find out more through professor todd's book snakes and ladders you can find the mile end institute on all social media channels and if you sign up to the mailing list on our website you'll always hear first about our future events and publications thank you again selena for being part of the discussion thank you and thanks to all of you for listening